This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by Sam Jeske, senior fellow here at MP, and Adisu Demesi, former campaign manager for presidential candidate Cory Booker, former campaign manager for now Governor Gavin Newsom, and an alum of the Hillary Clinton 2016 and Barack Obama 2008 presidential campaigns. Adisu, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. Sam, good to be with you, too. Can you start by giving our audience a little bit more about your background and, and your journey? I know a lot of people are probably curious, how does someone make it up to being a campaign manager for a presidential candidate? Yeah, it, it's. I did not set out to make campaigns a career for myself, but we're coming up now on the 17-year anniversary of my first uh, job and my first campaign. The reason why I remember wow. it is it was... Uh, it was my birthday, uh, which is June 1st, 2003. I moved to Iowa and uh, uh, was a field organizer for uh, John Kerry's presidential campaign in the primary caucus there. And um, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I wanted uh, George Bush not to be president anymore and that I thought John Kerry would be a good nominee. And they said, go to Iowa and organize. And I said, <laughs> what? Okay, fine. Um, and so I started there just thinking it would be a one cycle thing, I guess, a one time affair. And um, I really fell in love with organizing and with campaigns in Iowa in, in 03 and 04. And I um, stayed with the Kerry campaign through the general election and worked at the DNC as actually as then DNC chair Terry McAuliffe's body person, which we can talk about. I have some great stories for that uh, towards the end of the 2004 campaign. And and then, you know, I, basically I felt that I, I, really liked it. <laughs> and, uh, but we lost. And so I was trying to figure out what was, what I was going to do next. And, um, I ended up applying to law school and going to law school and thinking maybe I would become a lawyer or practicing lawyer, at least, uh, coming out of that. But the whole time I was in law school, I still was doing campaigns, staying in touch with my old carry campaign friends. I left law school a couple times to go work on campaigns in Tennessee and Iowa and other States. And when I got out of law school in 08, um, wasn't exactly the best time to not do politics. Uh, the excitement was palpable with Obama being the nominee. And so I went back to Ohio to work for Obama and um, as the GOTV director. And then sort of my, for the last 12 years have been uh, just working my way up in politics, starting again in organizing and in field. But um, I've done po I've done political comms and obviously managed quite a few campaigns now. So, I mean, it sounds like you've just kind of been everywhere, done everything on a campaign. It's almost a, a nomadic lifestyle, moving around a lot. You never know, you know, where your next job is going to come. Um, you know, a common question from young people is, while the landscape may have shifted since you started 17 years ago, what advice would you give to aspiring political professionals entering the world of politics right now? Where should they go? How can they get that first foot in the door, if you will? Yeah, it, it definitely is a nomadic lifestyle. And and um, 
you know, I, as I said, I'm, I'm turning 40 in, in now a couple of weeks, uh, and it's harder to do uh, as you get older. And so my, my number one piece of advice is do it while you can, if you can. There's obviously privilege, you know, wrapped up in that. Can you move places? Do you have obligations, uh, you know, at home with family or uh, whatever else it may be? But really, for those first couple of years in my 20s, uh, uh, I went everywhere and did kind of whatever was necessary, wherever was necessary. And that really, to me, is, first of all, it's exciting getting to move to places like Iowa and Tennessee and Arizona, um, the places I went when I was younger. Uh, I saw new things, learned new things, learned new places. Um, But also, that's how you, you know, there's no sort of direct ladder in politics and in campaigns. You do have to kind of jump laterally and up at the same time. And a lot of that means finding a race that may be in an unfamiliar place, um, but that gives you the right opportunity to expand your skills. So that would really be my number one piece of advice is go where the work is. Um, and that's true even if you want to end up back in one place. If you know you want to run for office or be a political operative in the state in which you grew up, I still think there's value in uh, while you're younger, you know, seeing different campaigns in different places and and learning different tactics and growing your network outside of a specific place. So um, that'd be number one. And if you go to where the work is and are sort of just willing to grind it out and do the hard work, um, whatever it may be, the cream rises to the top in politics, I think, uh, and in campaigns in a way that is truly meritocratic in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I was I ran my first campaign. When I was 30, 31 years old. And now I, there are plenty of campaign managers who are, you know, in their 20s and extremely good at this. Um, so there's no. um Again, there's no real direct path to doing things, in my opinion, no one thing to do that's going to get you to where I am or where you want to be. But if you follow the work, um, I think the career will follow. And so the work for you in this cycle was managing Cory Booker's presidential campaign. So reflecting on that, what was that experience like being in the most crowded field in Democratic primary history with so many twists and turns and then ultimately a kind of rapid coalescence behind Joe Biden? Did you see any of that coming? Well, it was a it was a truly great experience. I mean, uh, in the moment, there were days where I was miserable, obviously, as with any job, uh, any life. Um, but on the whole, it was just a great experience working for somebody in Corey who really has become a like a big brother to me and is a, a good friend and someone who I believe in deeply, but also with a team from our organizers on to my, you know, deputies, uh, that I loved and respected and was happy to go to war with every day. Um, and yeah, it was, I think a couple things. One is I did actually kind of see the, the, um, the coalescing coming down the pike, although I, it happened way faster than I thought it would happen. Um, but I think I was on a podcast actually with David Pluff sometime during the campaign, like in September or October of last year. and and Oh, in 04, this similar thing happened. Um, you know, John Kerry won in Iowa, so it happened earlier. But when he won in Iowa, the whole party coalesced behind him real fast. And by Super Tuesday, um, which was, I think, less than a month later at that point, or just over a month later, he had brought the whole party together and won and sort of, you know, knocked everybody out of the race quickly. And so I thought that was a possibility. I didn't necessarily think it was going to happen, but uh, it going to happen as fast as it did. But uh, but I'm not surprised in a lot of ways that um, we as a party, the electorate as a general matter, really wants the main event, which is beating Donald Trump, taking on Donald Trump, 
and going head to head with the terror and disaster that his presidency has been and not fighting amongst ourselves. And when Biden emerged as, as sort of the consensus choice, certainly amongst the, um, you know, moderate slash establishment, you know, wings of the party that the party that a lot of those folks just ran to him. Um, so yeah, yes, I saw it coming, but did it, did I think it was going to happen in three days? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> and that I think those three days of the first three days of March are going to be really interesting for the political history books. Yeah, I think I think that's you know probably I think that's right. And and when I think back to the campaign, you know the the narrative and kind of the whole framing, you know Joe Biden prior to entering the race, he was the favorite, the clear favorite. And then as soon as he entered the race, he was the favorite there. And then even though he did kind of dip throughout, ultimately his supporters did come through. Um, so so I wonder if it's almost like you said, a, a call back to 2004, where the narrative was set from the beginning and we just want to get on with it. Um, but even even knowing that, you still made the choice to work for Senator Booker. And I think there is a lot of interest in knowing like what the day-to-day of that is like, traveling to all of those different states, the debate prep, the the interactions. Do you do you feel like you you know, are on good terms with the staffs of the other candidates? I mean, these were your opponents. You were trying to beat them for so many months. What is that dynamic like? Yeah. So the day-to-day is, it's impossible to define (laughs) because so much of it is caught up in the news cycle, frankly, and and things that are out of your control. So a lot of what I did as the manager, at least, is rapid response. You know, it's, it's what's the crisis of the day. And frankly, as the campaign manager, if we had about you know, almost 200 staff at our peak, 200 staff and interns at least. Um, you know, if it makes it to your desk as the campaign manager, it's probably a crisis. <laughs> there are a lot of places where it can get caught and solved on the way up. So a lot of my job is dealing with crises and dealing with, you know, immediate challenges. And then the biggest piece of the job, um, biggest pieces, I guess, are managing Corey, the candidate, making sure that he gets what he needs um, and doesn't get what he doesn't need to distract him and managing the budget and making sure that I'm just keeping my eyes on um, the money as it comes in, as it goes out. I almost feel like there's, sorry to interrupt, I almost feel like there's a misperception that like Cory Booker's campaign is like Cory Booker, he's the boss, he oversees everything. But in reality, like you're the man behind the curtain making sure that the operations are, are actually running. Is that right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think he, you know, and that's true of most campaigns, certainly at the presidential level, the camp, the candidate has really two jobs, right? To raise money and to talk to voters, whether that be directly or through the press or what have you. But um, everything else, operationally, hiring, uh, you know, a lot of big strategic decisions, you do it in consultation with the with the candidate, but it's really more of a, I'm going to do this. Do you have an opinion about it? Yes, no. It's five minute conversation, but it's a weeks long execution. And so, yeah, Corey, the candidates really are not, I I think it works best, I should say, where the candidates are not involved in the day-to-day running of their campaigns. They are there for big decision-making, certainly, and they're consulted, obviously, on strategy and message and and those big decisions as well. But I was definitely, to Corey's credit, he gave me the full latitude to, um, to, to make those decisions. And many times, even I would try to consult him and he would say, nope, you're the guy, you know more than I do uh, about what's going on, what the dynamics are of this decision. Like, I trust you to make the decision, go ahead and, you know, and do it without having to go through a big 
rigmarole with him. So, yeah, it definitely is a, it's a lot of pressure <laughs> to that point. And that's why some days it can be miserable when you're making decisions between bad and worse options, which happens. Um, but uh, it, it's a rush for sure. And it was great. And I want to quickly answer your other question, which I think is really an interesting one for folks who haven't been in the senior level of presidential campaigns, which is I'm very close and was in contact with a lot of my counterparts on the other campaigns. Um during the campaigns. Uh, you know, I have very good friends in the senior levels of the Biden campaign, the Warren campaign, Pete's campaign, um, Sanders campaign. So we would talk and at debates and things like that, we would hang out together because, you know, a lot of those people I'd worked with, frankly, in, on the Kerry campaign or on Obama or Clinton or what have you. So we were opponents, but not enemies. And I think that, uh, is a, it's healthy, honestly, uh, in a primary because we're a family and now we all have to come together to elect Joe Biden. So it was, it, I don't think it's, I, I think behind the scenes with the staff, it's actually often a lot easier than you would think from what happens maybe, <laughs> you know, amongst supporters who are fighting on Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever. But we're still, we were friends then before, we were friends during and we're friends now. So transitioning a little bit from that kind of dynamic between campaigns and different ideologies, um, just this morning, Biden announced that uh, the members of his unity task force with Senator Sanders, and he also made some news with progressive housing policies like rent and mortgage forgiveness. Um, and earlier in March, he also embraced Elizabeth Warren's proposals on bankruptcy reform. So are these subtle movements left enough to bring the party together? Do you think that he's doing a good job of catering to that left wing of the party? I, I really do. I think it's, um, you know, he... There are a couple ways to act when you win, right? You can act like a conqueror or you can act like a unifier. And I think Biden and and Corey is like this too. And I think a lot of the leaders who ran for president, honestly, are like this. You know, they know that we need every, the whole ideological breadth of the Democratic Party to be in sync come, uh, you know, October and November when folks are voting. Uh to win this thing. And so I think he's done an excellent job, a really excellent job, Biden, in uh, in his campaign and reaching out to Sanders personally, Sanders supporters, um, Warren, Warren supporters, uh, and frankly, all the supporters of all the other campaigns. I mean, you know, I've talked to them uh, multiple times uh, about recommendations for staff and ideas and things we did on the campaign that they, you know, may or may not want to uh, do in the general um, but yes, is the short answer to your question. I think, um, there's more to do obviously. And there are some people who are not going to be happy, uh, which is fine. It's, uh, it's par for the course. Ultimately, um, all they can do is try and things like this morning, um, uh, I think show and, you know, it's showing and not just telling that, that the Biden campaign is serious about bringing together the ideological diversity of the party. And I also think something that came to my mind as I was reading the news was it's it's a stark contrast to the Trumpian, I alone can fix it, right? Joe Biden is trying to lead by committee and bring everyone together in a way that everyone can have a voice uh, and, and shape the party platform. So I just thought that that not only is it unifying the party, but I do think it sets up an interesting contrast to the incumbent administration as well. Yeah. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, 
former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. I want to pivot a little bit to strategy. You know, you've been working in politics, you said, for 17 years. How do you think ha- digital campaigning has changed since then? I mean, back in 2004, the iPhone wasn't even invented. Yeah. So in the era of COVID-19, along with all of the other digital innovations of years past, how do you think the Trump administration and the Biden campaign are going to be able to really reach voters and influence people solely through digital as, as we see that they have to do now? Yeah, I think, I, I think first of all, it, it has been evolving to your point for you know, every presidential cycle, we get better and better at it. No four, the big thing was online fundraising that Howard Dean, you know, in his campaign pioneered and raised a ton of money in 08. I, you know, we didn't even really have Twitter. <laughs> it was really, we started, we were starting to have Twitter, but it was Facebook and, and in 12 Twitter and, now uh, in sixteen, certainly more, more Twitter uh, and other platforms, Instagram and others that have. So, at the amount of change that has happened in just the you know almost two decades that I've been doing this is remarkable. And I think every presidential campaign has to relearn, or not relearn, but learn again what the new tools are, what the new tactics are, what have you. And the Biden campaign is no different. My big <clears throat> sort of hope for the and the reality, though, I should say is in a world of COVID-19 where we're all at home, I think it just becomes more important, but it's not like uh, in November, if we are back to some semblance of what it was like before, it's going to disappear because a lot, you know, younger people are start, are now becoming older folks, you know, <laughs> they are and becoming more reliable voters and more young people are plugged into politics, I think, broadly speaking. And so, and they're more digitally native than you know, certainly people in their 50s and 60s. And so that's how they get their news. That's how they get their information. And you got to live there. And so my number one piece of advice to to campaigns, certainly what we tried to do on the Booker campaign and even Newsom campaign before that is you got to go meet people where they are and be your authentic self. And I think a lot of times there's this, there's this debate going on right now in public about the Biden campaign, it's digital strategy. And, and you know, I think a lot of folks who are having that debate aren't seeing what the Biden campaign is doing because they don't live in the spaces where the Biden campaign is going and and doing their, you know, executing their digital strategy. And ultimately, it's not about, in my opinion, you know, catering to people who want to see a specific thing if they're already going to vote for you. The goal here is trying to motivate people who are unlikely to vote for you, or I should say who are unlikely to vote or to persuade people who are going to vote to vote for you. And as long as they're living in those spaces and going into those digital spaces and, and creating good content that appeals to those particular people, then I'm good with that. And I think that that's what, where they're focused. That's what they're trying to do. And, um, they're going to have to get better at it as any campaign is, but, um, I don't want them to cater to what I think is good. I want them to cater to what the voters who are the most persuadable and the most motivatable um, 
uh, need. And that's probably a lot of things that I don't even understand, but I'm happy to um, let them, you know, figure out and, and then execute the plan. We've already seen a lot of states push back their primaries or caucuses because of concerns over coronavirus and public health. Do you think this sets a dangerous precedent for future elections? How can states and localities run these elections to make sure that every citizen has a fair chance to cast a ballot while also keeping those voters safe? Yeah, I look, I feel I think what Governor Newsom has done out here in California by now. And again, Oregon and Washington have and other states have done this before, but moving our election to where everybody gets a mail-in ballot and has the option to to vote by mail is just common sense. It was common sense before the pandemic. It's definitely common sense now. Um, uh, and I think every state should at least have that option. But I think we also have to recognize, you know, inequity and, and privilege that comes with that um, and make sure that if the, there needs to be in-person voting, there needs to be options for, you know, not mail voting that are safe. And we just have to spend the money to do it. If we believe in democracy and believe that elections are the cornerstone of our republic, then we can afford to uh, put the resources, human resources and financial resources into making it safe for people to vote in person. Um, So I think, uh, I think there are a couple things we have to do, but to me, the biggest, frankly, the biggest challenge that we're going to have this November, in my opinion, is a is a motivation and GOTV challenge more than it is a persuasion challenge. Um, I think if if our folks show up in numbers that um, that are sort of more normal, then we will then Biden will win, and I think win uh, could win pretty pretty handily, honestly. Um, but in the world of where people are feel like it's unsafe to vote. Um, or potentially feel like it's unsafe to vote. Uh, and maybe, you know, and obviously they need to be motivated to vote from a message perspective as well. Um, it's going to be that that's, that's going to be the challenge. So we have to take as Democrats, we have to take at least the first one off the table. We have to take them both off the table, but we have to work hard now to take the first one off the table, which is we have to make it so that it is easy for people to vote and safe for people to vote. And as part of this new stimulus package and, and everything we do between now and November, litigation, advocacy, and and messaging, we have to emphasize that voting is safe and easy and, and help people figure out how to do it in a way that uh, works for them. And so going back a little bit to the primary cycle, we thought it might be fun to do just a few rapid fire questions about some prominent policies that were floating during that presidential sure. primary and get your thoughts on whether you think it's kind of a good or a bad idea and just maybe a sentence or so. Does that sound good to you? Oh, yeah. This is okay. Put me on the top. <laughs> awesome. So first, um, abolishing the filibuster. Good or bad idea? I don't – I think not a good idea. I think um, – that's my own opinion. I think uh, it, it it's good until you're in the <laughs> minority <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, you're stopping really bad stuff from happening. So I do not think it's a good idea. I think there are other structural reforms, though, that we should make in the Senate to um, make it easier for good things to at least come to the floor and get a vote. But um, but I don't know if abolishing the filibuster is the right idea. How about expanding um, the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary in general? Uh, I I think we should be open to that. Absolutely. There's no there's nothing magical about the number nine other than history. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd be I'd certainly be open to 
going up to 11 or 13. Okay, and then this one is uh, specifically about uh, presidential primary. So obviously in our current system, it's a ton of momentum and it matters kind of who won which state and how that carries into into the calendar. What are your thoughts on a national primary election where all states choose their pick for the nominee on a single day? I think it's a terrible idea. I think um, and I, I think you have to have small states uh, or some grouping of states that is smaller than the national primary go first or else the entire campaign is going to be about fundraising and media. Um, and one of the beautiful things about having small states, it doesn't necessarily have to be Iowa and New Hampshire, but having small states go first is that it forces the candidates to do retail politics. And I think we should be privileging and making sure that that doesn't get lost from our politics. So I think we should do maybe regional primaries. Uh, I'd be open to that, but a national one I think would be a bad idea. Got it. And then thoughts on abolishing the electoral college? Oh yeah, we should should have happened a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a it's a terrible system, uh, in my opinion, that doesn't uh, really reflect democracy as I see it. And um, I get why it was instituted in 1789, but it's 2020, and uh, uh, we the popular vote should carry the day for who is the leader of our country. What about ranked choice voting? So I live in the Bay Area where we've had it for a long time, and uh, I like it personally. I think um, it allows people to express sort of a truer preference, in my opinion. Um, but I have seen some challenges with it, which is it you have to educate people on how to do it, honestly. And I think you can get some spoiled ballots and other things if the, edu- the public education isn't good enough. So I'm generally for ranked choice voting. I think it'd be a really interesting system to implement in presidential primaries in particular, um, or primaries in general. But uh, but I, operationally, there's some challenges. So um, I get the, the apprehension. All right. So Adisi, we're, we're coming up on 30 minutes here, and I want to be respectful of your time. But I can't let you off the hook. You mentioned your time working with Governor Terry McAuliffe. What, what, what's your favorite story about your time with him? I just, I got to hear it. Oh my gosh. I, I should, I should have come prepared. Uh, it was just, honestly, I was 24, 23 years old when I worked for him. And um, he is, I, I, he is one of the most energetic human beings, probably the most energetic human being I've ever met. He didn't sleep. He, he, I mean, literally, he had a thing where um, he wouldn't allow his staff or, you know, people he worked with to see him sleeping. Um, And if you fell asleep around him, he would, you know, I don't remember exactly what he did, but he would do the equivalent of like drawing on your face with Sharpie (laughs) because he was like, you're you're 23 years old and I'm 50 and you can't keep up with me. But, um, but he, I remember on a flight back from Phoenix to DC after the, after the last um, debate, uh, Bush Kerry debate. Uh, I thought fi- he finally fell asleep, and it was the first time I saw him asleep in you know six, eight months or whatever it was of working for him. And we all took pictures. There were no cell phone, or I guess we had Blackberries at the time, but it wasn't like the same <laughs> as now, so we couldn't spread it to social media or anything like that. But but I I, I distinctly remember being on a flight uh, in October of 2004 and seeing Terry McCall asleep and being like, Oh my God, he's human. <laughs> but he is a, he is a force of nature. It was honestly one of the best educations a person can get in politics, just being around somebody of that talent and network and ability and energy at such a young age. And 
I love the man. And if he does run for governor of Virginia again, which it sounds like he may, um, I'm, I'm with him because uh, he's he did a good job when he did it last time, I think, uh, and surprised some people in doing it. It didn't surprise me because I'd, I'd seen him and what he can do. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Um, so just to wrap up, what is the best way, in your opinion, you think for people to get involved right now and help Democrats get elected at all levels across the country? What do you think is the best way that people can make a difference? I think, look, we still have to do the blocking and tackling of campaigns. And frankly, folks may have more time to do that uh, because they're not commuting as much. They're not, um, uh, you know, their time is spent there at home and they don't have to, they're not going out to bars or, or whatever it might be. And so don't think that because it's harder uh, right now to do voter contact work, to make phone calls, to reach out to your network about politics, that it's not, you know, just as, or even more necessary. So um, David Pluff says this, who, who ran um, who ran Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. I think he's totally right, which is a lot of times we think of campaigns as these command and control um, things where, you know, Jen O'Malley, who's running the Biden campaign, is going to set out a strategy and then we're all going to execute it. And I think that in the social media world in 2020, and particularly among young people, it is much more diffuse than that. You are the boss of your little network, or maybe your big network of people who follow you on social media, who live in your neighborhood. And if you can engage those folks on some local race in your community, you can have, even now, I think, an even bigger impact than you otherwise uh, may have been able to have, because I think fewer people are doing it and people are more apprehensive about doing it. So it's a simple answer. It's just get involved, do it, like volunteer, find the campaign that motivates you. If it's not the presidential and if it's something else, go there, but um, give your time to that. And if you have the desire to work on one, um, do do that too, uh, uh, if you can, because it is an experience that could change your life, like it changed mine. <laughs> uh, and you could be sitting, <laughs> sitting around at 40 years old, wondering how the hell you, uh, you, you got here on a podcast with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> don't make it sound so bad i think that's a great that's place great. To be. I, I literally wonder sometimes i'm like how did i get to be when i even say the 17 years thing it's like how did that happen i don't know um but it's just because i love it and i kept doing it and I, you know i wasn't always a campaign manager i was cranking out phone calls four hours a night for six months just like um the folks who work for me on the booker campaign and other campaigns so you got to start somewhere and the best place to start in my opinion is working for a candidate you believe in doing the hard work of talking to other people. And, um, that can lead to a career that you love. Um, so, and podcasts that you have a lot of fun on. So, so thank you. For, <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And to everybody who's out there figuring out how to get involved, just bite the bullet and get out there and do it. And, uh, I look forward to listening to you on, on this podcast, the Gen Z version, I guess, of this podcast. Um, uh, there you go. There you go. Gen Z politics. Yeah, exactly. So, so one, one more question for you and, and thank you for coming on and it's great to connect personally. And I look forward to seeing what your next move is, but how can people find you online and how can they follow whatever might be next for you? Yeah, I I'm on Twitter. I tweet a lot about, uh, politics at, uh, ASDEM is my handle. Um, but I also tweet about other stuff, <laughs> my life, my wife, my, uh, my favorite teams, the Warriors and the Braves. Uh, so follow me there. Um, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. I'm sorry, Facebook and Instagram. Um, A-D-M-S-E-A-D-E-M-I-S-S-I-E. 
Uh, but Twitter's really where I do most of my political commentary. And I my DMs are open if you have questions, uh, advice, what have you, especially during this pandemic. I'm having a lot of fun, honestly, and uh, getting a lot of fulfillment out of helping folks figure out how they can get involved in politics. So please do reach out to me and uh, stay in touch. And uh, I'll let you know what I'm doing next very soon. Stay tuned. Awesome. That sounds great. Thanks again for your time. Thank you both. It's been a fun. All right. And for our listeners, be sure to find us online, millennialpolitics.co, on social media, at Politics. We're now on iTunes, the Google App Store, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate us five stars, leave us a review. That's how people find us. And stay tuned for our next episode. Mm-hmm.